0: Welcome to Critical Attitudes. I'm Nathan Waddell, and in this episode I have a conversation with Dr Chloe Ashbridge, who since the time of recording, earlier in 2021, has taken up a lectureship at the University of Newcastle in the UK. Chloe's book, Rewriting the North, Contemporary British Fiction and the Politics of Devolution, is due out in early 2023. I began our conversation by asking Chloe how she'd been getting on during the ups and downs of the COVID nineteen pandemic,
1: um, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, really. But I think, on the whole, I've been quite lucky. So, a kind of a lot of professional changes have happened throughout the pandemic um, that have been relatively positive. So, finishing the PhD in the middle of a pandemic and the lockdown is actually quite useful if you've conducted your research already. And you just have to write up. So you can't go anywhere. There's no social events to kind of distract you. Um, my, all my hobbies were generally cancelled because um, the places that I would go are now closed. So in that respect, I was I kind of made the most of just having almost like a writing retreat style final few months and getting that um, submitted, which was really nice. And yeah, in a similar way, because universities had moved to online teaching by the time it came to me looking for a job it meant that I could like work in a different city to the one that I was based in so I was lucky enough to start working at Nottingham Trent last year um, which I wouldn't have been able to do if things were face-to-face so I'm based in York so it would be um, quite a big commute to kind of do that thought like four or five times a week but Um, when I were there we were just teaching like one class a week face to face and the rest was online so that was really good and I wouldn't have applied for that if it was kind of normal times so yeah positive things have come out from it but in the same vein just as everybody else you know the things that we like to do to turn off from work were no longer like possible which has been quite difficult but um, I have learned to appreciate like walking and the outdoors which is a massive achievement for me because well anybody that knows me will know that I used to hate the outdoors and I now own a pair of walking boots so positives and negatives definitely.
0: Um, You mentioned a moment ago the process of completing a PhD during a pandemic and I've seen several PhD students complete and I've also been part of the examination processes for several PhD students since the pandemic began and in each case I've really sympathized with them and tried to sort of put myself in their shoes and think very carefully about how it must be for them you know more so than you might ordinarily although one always wants to do that but during under under the pandemic conditions you know the, everything is intensified and also the i don't know the sense of anticlimax must be i mean i don't know if that's fair i'm already loading the question in terms of anticlimax i found my phd under ordinary circumstances in my relatively privileged shoes very anticlimactic you know you get to the end of this long haul you print it off or as we did then and you hand it in and and that's it really <laughs> and then you, and then you have a viva um and and it sort of even that feels a little kind of dulled by comparison with the long haul so i wonder i mean did, did you feel that was that did did that feel at all sort of un, unsatisfactory in any way
1: um yeah i mean i'm not going to lie it what it did feel very anticlimactic because i think as you say, ordinarily, it probably is so anyway, like things like graduations are in that same way, because you think about them for so long. And with the PhD, it's kind of like the final step, really, in kind of your university career before maybe being an academic or going into any kind of career that you want. And it's something that I've thought about for years and years and years. And I think it's about eight years study at university that kind of culminates in that submission. And I'd always envisaged kind of going to the office where I was going to submit my hard copy and getting a nice picture outside of the building. You know, whichever institution it was that I submitted it at. Um, And in the end, I was just sat in the room that I'm in now in my office at home, loaded onto the university website and I pressed submit. And that was pretty much it. And I got a nice photo next to my laptop submitting Um, my thesis and I did print out a hard copy partly for the Viva for practical reasons but partly just because I wanted it to feel in some way like I'd actually submitted something substantial but yeah it was anticlimactic but I will say at the same time that the Viva being online I think was probably a positive thing for me I quite liked that I could do it in the surroundings of my my home and I could have like my pdf next to me that I could search for like specific words in there and I think yeah it generally made the experience feel a bit more comfortable for me than having it as a more kind of formal process at the institution but yeah it is something that I will that I kind of think I missed submitting during lockdown and I think it'll be the same with graduations as well I know at Nottingham we've not got an in-person graduation this year so I'll, I'll wait for my name to across the screen from home when I have my graduation but yeah there are, there are bigger things to worry about in the pandemic I, I guess but yeah it's anticlimactic
0: I mean you're, you're correct of course there are bigger things but at the same time from your perspective this is a big thing um so so you know I I, I can't help but feel very sort of sorry for your cohort you know and and it's 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 well, I, I just don't really know what to say about it, other than to say to say that you know, because you're you've been denied in some ways the experience that generations of people prior to you have had, and and many people after you will have, and 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 there is that sense of culminating achievement that comes from being able to do it in the normal way. At the same time, there are advantages and benefits to to the way the pandemic has forced a lot of people to work slightly differently. But but yeah, I mean that sense of being in the same place at all times um has has really been difficult to to cope with i think for a lot of people so you know i mean i admire the way that you've been able to to just operate under these conditions it can't have been an easy thing
1: yeah i mean it it just gets um i think it just you ad, you adapt to it and it's strange because i've always been somebody that can never work from home like when i was an undergraduate throughout all kind of my studies i've always worked from the library um, even if that's just going in for an hour to get something done before starting work whenever I've been at home I've always like, procrastinated and never been able to focus but when you have to be at home um, you do just well I've, I've just kind of got used to it and just developed other kind of working patterns so like for example one of the ways that I've dealt with it is I do a little fake commute in the morning so like I'll go for a walk for maybe like 40 minutes and then come back home and pretend as though I've just walked to work and then I often do that at the end of the day just to kind of bookend it and feel like I've actually gone somewhere other than my house. Yeah, that's been quite useful and you know just generally kind of trying to maintain contacts with people that are in a similar position. Mostly it's been like other PhD friends, but yeah, that's been really helpful as well.
0: Okay, let's talk about your research because you've you've mentioned the process of actually getting through the PhD. Could you tell people what your PhD research was and what the sort of the main intervention of it is?
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. So my main focus was contemporary British literature, politics um, and the novel, specifically with an emphasis on the North and how we understand Northern England. So I kind of looked at the way in which representations of the North intersects with contemporary political developments in Britain and the idea... That we can kind of register the breakdown of the centralized British state form in literature that's set in northern England. So, I kind of start at a time period from about 2000, so just after the Devolved Parliaments Act, and then I go up to Brexit and then kind of look at the different ways that the North has been represented at times of political change. So, um, I have a chapter on like the Northern Race Riots in 2001. I look at the way in which the Scottish Devolution referendum has been responded to in kind of regional context. Um, And then my final two chapters of my PhD focus on the Brexit novel and specifically kind of thinking about Brexit, not as an isolated event, but as one that was kind of, um, the seeds were sown for Brexit in the preceding decades to 2016, but specifically in terms of how it's an issue of regional and even development So thinking about, you know, Thatcherism, the industrialisation and the way in which that kind of inequality continues to bear on particular communities and how that's borne out in literature as well. So um, in terms of my intervention, let me just think about that one. I mean, one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of focus on the North was that I'd just finished my MA when the Brexit referendum happened and I'd been studying literature that was set in Manchester and I'd done a dissertation that kind of compared Manchester and London literature and representations of social class and urban space and as I was writing up the conclusion to that dissertation it got me thinking about how the north is kind of in political discourse especially it's less a kind of geographical territory than it is a metaphor for a a whole host of kind of different tensions and concerns almost all of which are kind of class inflected. And I think it was bound to this idea of the North that was tied to kind of nostalgia and working class identity that had come out of the 1980s and a kind of period in which social realism was kind of depicting these kind of identities. And it's been a stereotype that has held in culture and in politics. And I was just interested in why that was and why particular associations become attached to the region and the people that live there so my intervention would be looking at kind of contemporary representations of the north that actively seek to challenge that and I think because the north as a region is often positioned in kind of opposition to to London what I found in a lot of the texts that I was looking at was that kind of I call it a cultural politics of devolution in my thesis But that this idea that the centralisation of our politics in Westminster and of the current kind of democratic system that we operate under in Britain is fundamentally inadequate and that these novels are trying to kind of imagine alternative democratic and social relations from the north. So kind of framing the region as a privileged site through which to imagine that. And yeah, so I mean, generally the novels that I look at as well because they're contemporary, they're often understudied and published by independent presses as well. Um, so some of the authors that I look at are people like Sanjeev Sahota, a Sheffield-based author, Ben Myers, Sarah Hall, um, although she's becoming increasingly um, studied, I think, recently. But yeah, it was just kind of paying attention to those more contemporary representations and how they might kind of challenge those stereotypes, because I think that they have kind of political that well they run the risk of having political impact in how the region is kind of represented on an actual political level as well
0: um, you mentioned the phrase "cultural politics in in accounting for the distinctiveness of of your research, and as you were talking the the sort of the interplay between culture and politics is very apparent in your in your work. Do you, do you see the work as sort of primarily political with a literary content or the other way around? Do you see it as a as a study of literature that is sort of inescapably bound to the political or is that a false distinction?
1: No, no, no. I think you're exactly right. I think that there's kind of two levels to the question, really. And I think that especially when you talk about devolution, so there's an existing kind of understanding um, in like the Scottish national context, for example, that literature or culture preceded actual political devolution. So there's kind of a history there of writers actively imagining a devolved Scotland before it actually happened. But I think it's interesting that it doesn't seem to work the same way in England. So what I try to capture with the term the cultural politics of devolution is that the work that I'm doing, it's the devolutionary on two levels. So on the one hand, My kind of spatial optic as a literary critic is kind of political and devolutionary in that I pay attention to kind of understudied texts from the North and you can kind of read that as a kind of devolved methodology. But actually the texts that I'm looking at as well are explicitly political and engaging with devolution as a constitutional process. So like Sarah Hall, for example, in The Wolf Border talks about a successful Scottish independence referendum and imagines what happens to the British Union after then. And another of her novels, The Cahullan Army, um, again imagines the actual dissolution of Britain um, and an alternative community kind of sets up in the Cumbrian uplands as a kind of counter-narrative to that. I think that they're intimately linked, but also that in a kind of different way, I think politics is bound to literature and that it kind of acts as a trigger for different literary trends or can kind of help trigger them in some way. Um, So one of the things that I'm really interested in at the minute and that kind of formed the final chapter of my PhD thesis was kind of that in post-Brexit novels there appeared to be this kind of trend to pre-history or the primitive and I think that that has been triggered by the actual political event as a way of articulating all of the kind of discourse surrounding, um, I don't know, like a reactionary nationalism and nostalgia that was kind of banded around during um, conversations surrounding Brexit in often quite negative, reductive ways. But it was definitely present. And you can kind of see a similar trend happening in literature as a way to kind of articulate those concerns. So one of the novels that I'm thinking about, or two rather, first one would be Fiona Mosley's helmet and Sarah Moss's ghost wall as the second one and both of those are both set in in respective locations in the north but they kind of imagine um alternative social and kind of democratic communities that are surrounded by um like primitive or ecologically sustainable life ways and there seems to be a kind of recurrent preoccupation with Almost a time that's kind of unrecognisable to our contemporaries. So, going back to some kind of primitive or prehistorical moment as a way to kind of conceptualise um, what's happening in this post Brexit moment. So, I think, yeah, um, you have to kind of read them, especially contemporary literature, as kind of interwoven but on kind of lots of different levels, if that makes sense.
0: I was wondering again as you were talking about the sources for this sort of. In, in your life, um, but also in your professional existence as a as a scholar. What took you to the contemporary and the north as a as a focus for that in the first place?
1: That's interesting. I think maybe there's two questions there with the north and the contemporary. I think I'll I'll start with the contemporary one because that's a bit more easy for me to answer because I think it's a bit less personal. Maybe since my undergraduate, I've always been driven by an interest in politics, really. I think I must have taken a module that introduced me to that way of thinking. And I specifically became interested in how literature can provide a kind of alternative narrative or a way of articulating current political kind of concerns or ruptures that were more nuanced than political discourse allows, that often tends to be quite oppositional and reductive. And I think as well, the the reason that the contemporary is so interesting is that, for example, looking at things like Brexit, the full ramifications of that hasn't been played out yet. And literature kind of attempts to kind of grapple with those uncertainties or imagine and um, the implications of that in quite interesting ways. So that's, I guess, why I was drawn to the contemporary and really just kind of Looking at literature that is rooted in the present and the kind of actual, I don't know, world. I guess that I'm living in is is why I'm interested in that, and I guess it's a, a reason that I would focus on British literature as well. And it kind of ties in with why I'm interested in the North. So I think the North is kind of really central to kind of the political conversations that we're having um, in Britain at the moment. But it's also a personal investment as well. So I think. As I I kind of mentioned earlier, one of the things that my project stems from is that the North is not simply geographic. It's kind of a lot of different things. And one of those is a socioeconomic metaphor, I think, as well. And it was something that I kind of was increasingly aware of personally. And one of the times that I was aware of that was probably when I moved to Nottingham to do my PhD in the first place. So um, I'd moved from Hull to York to do my undergraduate and I didn't really notice it there as much I guess because I was still kind of in Yorkshire um even though York's obviously got a very different demographic but then when I moved to Nottingham I kind of felt that I, I generally experienced my accent as as a class dynamic if that makes sense so I felt quite out of place especially in a university setting like the way that I spoke I felt out of place and that what I was saying wasn't as valuable because I didn't speak in the same way or you know I just generally wasn't surrounded by many people that had come from where I'd come from and it was kind of during that time that I really started to think about my identity my class identity and how it kind of intersected with geographically where I'd come from and yeah I think that I think that might be it but it's definitely an academic interest, but also probably stems from my personal um, experience of, of being Northern, I guess, not to kind of reduce it to any one thing, but it's something that I think um, I've felt throughout my academic journey.
0: So we've spoken about your your research and the PhD process, and we've talked about the kind of the things that took you to those in the first place. Um the obvious place to go next is where to go next you know what's what's taking you onwards what what's the next step for you at the moment because you finished the PhD we're in this quite uncertain moment what's what's next in principle for you
1: um so a few things really in terms of research my biggest project at the minute is turning my thesis into a book so I've just finished my book proposal which is quite exciting um and I've just been revising a few chapters. Kind of take them away from being kind of more thesis led so anything that's a bit more methodological so that's kind of my main project but that's a definitely a long-term one and I'm currently working on on two articles but one of them is in literature and one of them is in pedagogy so I'm quite interested in um well pedagogical research but specifically in the discipline of English literature so um I've just finished writing an article with colleagues in um, education about critical media literacy, neoliberal education reform, um, and the kind of pedagogical implications of that for the teaching of English literature at university. So um, that's kind of the the next thing um, that I think will be out from me. And then my next project that is kind of very in the early stages, um, I've, I've just started thinking about it, but um, it kind of ties on to what I was saying about Politics kind of driving new literary trends so i'm interested in the idea of the rural north and i want to explore that a little bit further um specifically the idea of this kind of northern rural wilderness of a place of kind of constitutional possibility and the way in which the idea of wilderness is often deployed as a kind of method for articulating like post-british regional politics so looking at novels set in the Pennines, North Yorkshire and um, Cumbria, that kind of thing. So that's kind of my next literary thing. But it's kind of, it's tricky in the current climate. So I've just finished a fixed-term contract um, at Nottingham Trent University, and I'm now working in university access in the non-for-profit sector. So um, that's kind of what I'm doing at the minute. So trying to do my research on the evenings and the weekends, which is quite hard. But um, hopefully, I will find an academic job for the future. But you know, the climate is is what it is at the minute. It's quite difficult.
0: Um, I mean, the word neoliberal springs to mind again as you as you say that. Just in terms of how that sort of squeezed opportunities for people. Could you give us a preview of that article you mentioned, the one that you co-wrote with colleagues in education?
1: Yeah. Okay. So the gist. So basically, um, we start from this idea of critical media literacy as this kind of foundation that underpins the teaching of literature in secondary education that came about broadly in like the mid twentieth century by people like like Paulo Freire, Pierre Bourdieu, those kind of people, and roughly until about two thousand and eleven, those kind of ideas about analysis, the study of literature as a way to kind of um, I don't I don't know I don't know the right way to phrase it, but using literature as a kind of Um, vehicle to articulate different kind of political views or to challenge systems of inequality those kind of values underpinned the teaching of literature in secondary education because there was this focus on analytical texts and looking at literature from different societies and the emphasis was on students creating their own work as well so it was more like they were active kind of creators of the curriculum in that sense. And then um, there was always kind of some degree that that wasn't the case, obviously, because of the kind of focus of GCSEs. But in 2011, when Michael Gove became um, education secretary and kind of initiated those education reforms, and there was kind of this shift towards an explicitly more neoliberal education system in which education was purely valued in terms of how it would kind of offer this financial benefit to you know, pupils as their future selves, but also to the wider economy. And there was a disproportionate emphasis on technology and STEM subjects. And it meant that in subjects like English and history, they were kind of massively deprivileged, but the actual curricula was reformed as well, in a way that took it away from those values that used to underpin it. And those values were the ones of critical literacy. So like deconstruction, analysis um, and co-creation and all of those kind of skills that, you know, as a literature academic, you know, is so important for kind of functioning in the world and kind of making the world a kind of more equal society and um, to be a little bit utopian about it. But all of that was lost from the English curriculum and it was a focus um that was replaced by an emphasis on rote learning, memorization of key quotes, um, performance in an exam, all of this kind of thing. So this focus on on matrices as well. So kind of what we tried to argue in this article, really, and what we found is that since then there's been this kind of disjuncture between the idea and the values underpinning critical literacy and English education, and that that kind of translates into and the HE sphere as well, because it affects the ways that students address these texts, the kind of conversations that they have about them, and has kind of coalesced with a wider neoliberalization of the academy too. So we can't just consider these changes that we are kind of facing in HE in isolation, because they're effectively bolstered from secondary upwards. And I think it's something that as teachers in a university setting as well, you kind of have to bear in mind that the kind of students that we're working with, especially since then are coming with a secondary education that kind of has those barriers. And I think it's important to kind of address that. in. Well, I try to address it in my practice as a teacher that university study of English is quite different or it should be quite different to the way in which English has to be taught in school nowadays, that there is room for this kind of reflexivity to challenge existing hierarchies and to have these kind of, I guess, more argumentative questions. And, you know, I think that the real fundamental importance of having a secondary English curriculum that is engaged with the idea of critical literacy has kind of been borne out by um, all of the kind of stuff surrounding like post-truth and fake news um, and misinformation, especially around the pandemic as well. It's not necessarily a new thing or a new change, but I think that um, in these kind of this kind of current context, it's become increasingly important to kind of talk about it and acknowledge it in a HE setting too.
0: Something that's becoming very apparent as you've spoken over the last twenty to twenty-five minutes is a thread running through your through your work, the PhD, the article you've just been talking about, your your attitude to HE, I think, and beyond. Is is a sense of the utopian possibility of literature as a, as a as a mechanism within and beyond it for for change, or for or, or at least for registering problems that might then be tackled in some way. So, two questions: Do you, do you think that's true? Am I reading you correctly? And also, could you say more about as you put it, you know, the utopian implications of the way you're thinking about literature and its place in the world? Collaboratively, but also as an individual researcher?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, again, it's a tricky one in that I, I don't think that literature in and of itself fundamentally has those possibilities. I think it needs to be harnessed in the right way and taught in the right way to have that impact. Um, so, while on the one hand, I think, yeah, and my research um would probably fit quite nicely with this in that um, literature helps register kind of real lived inequalities in different ways and perhaps in more sophisticated ways that are not allowed by kind of political discourse and they kind of help people to articulate those inequalities themselves as well but I think in terms of we also have to acknowledge that we're working in a very privileged space quite a lot of the time and for those utopian possibilities to be born out it needs to kind of go alongside a teaching practice that is also as kind of democratised, I guess, as it possibly can be. And I think literature does lend itself to that because it's, you know, rooted in discussion, collaboration, challenging ideas. But I think it's also important to challenge the kind of existing hierarchies that are still quite prevalent, I think, in English literature. as a discipline that is often associated with cultural elitism, and can be quite alienating as well to people if they're coming from backgrounds that, you know, are perhaps underrepresented at university. And I think this is what informs my work. And it's probably why I'm interested in pedagogy as well as literature, is that, you know, again, it's rooted in my personal experiences and I don't want to get too anecdotal, but it is probably just that feeling like when I first started university as an undergraduate and was studying, why a kind of canonical set of texts? that I felt quite, again, out of place and that I didn't have the right knowledge. But it took the teachers that I was working with to kind of employ those kind of ideas. Um, But yeah, the ways in which the teachers presented these texts to me as almost objects that we could critique and that our opinions were valued and that we didn't have to just love the text. We could you know, actively criticise them as long as we had something interesting to say. Um, and that's where I think the utopian possibilities come from. It's from education more generally that, I guess, yeah, marries with the kind of utopian possibilities of literature. Yeah, I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: It makes complete sense. I mean, I, so, so in my teaching experience, certainly the, the best seminar experiences have been those ones where a group has been very dissatisfied with what we've read the way it's presented culturally is this is the great work of x whatever it is you know vanity fair or whatever and and this student on this day in this moment does not agree with that and to really say well that matters you know that response it may be in the popular imagination a minority response but as far as you're concerned it's immediate and it's real and we need to focus on that and you know from that you can build in other more interesting directions perhaps we're 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 sort of approaching the end of our time unfortunately i really would love to carry on talking with you but but needs must um sometimes i like to end these interviews by asking the people i'm talking to what they've been reading recently i just wondered do you would you mind saying sort of three books that you've been reading recently or the last three books that you read that spring to mind that you'd recommend three
1: books might be a challenge <laughs> this is what happens when you finish a phd there's you don't want to read anything anymore. Yeah, but I can I can pinpoint. I'll pinpoint two books. The first one is Eliza Clark's Boy Parts. So um I would definitely recommend that one. Um it's set in in Newcastle. I won't say too much about it because it kind of it will it will spoil it. But it's about a young woman who's just graduated from university in London, moves back up north and she is a photographer of Oh, I don't know how to describe it. She's kind of, I'll, I will say an exotic photographer. But yeah, I would, it's a really kind of interesting and new representation of like, of sexuality, class and gender um, that I've not seen before. And it's a really interesting representation of like the millennial figure as well. So like the educated, socially upwardly mobile um, millennial, really good book. Um, and another one would be Sarah Moss's Summer Water. So that's the follow-up, well, it's not the follow-up because it's not about the same thing, but I think they quite quite, work quite well together. The novel she published just after, Ghost Wall. So that's set in, um, I want to say somewhere in Scotland. I don't know exactly where, um, but kind of each chapter is like a vignette from um, the perspective of a different person on this holiday park somewhere in Scotland. And it's a full novel that is just set over 24 hours. Um, and it's kind of tying together the different perspectives of all of these different people, um, again, set after Brexit. <laughs> um, but it is it, it is interesting. It's one of the novels where and I quite like it because of this. You wouldn't know it was kind of a politically engaged novel in that way, um, unless you kind of read Ghost World probably um, or read into it in the way that I might read into it. Um, so, yeah, I'd recommend those.
0: Well, I've read neither of those. So this is uh, this is lovely. I have two books now that I want to go and read. So thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: No, Thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed it.